G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. So I wonder if you spotted the connection there between the 2 Peter reading, I'm sure you did, and the Genesis reading. So this was 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. I'd just like to revise that with you by way of introduction. And if the Lord rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. So Lot, it says three times, righteous, righteous, his righteous soul. Is there any reasonable ground in the Old Testament text itself for thinking that Lot's behaviour is honourable? This is Don Carson's question. I reckon it's a pretty good question, isn't it? In particular, he goes on, in particular, Lot's willingness to sacrifice his daughters to protect his visitors strikes many modern contemporary readers as sexist, selfish, weak and thoughtless regardless of how important hospitality was to the culture of the time. So, is Peter's use of the Old Testament really, in this instance, a twisting of it, based on wishful thinking? I'm sure that thought occurred to you. Now, I'm going to argue that Peter is not twisting the text, and I'm also going to argue that Job's conduct is indeed, how did he put it, sexist, selfish, weak and thoughtless. But I open with that reading that reminder from 2 Peter for two reasons. One, to underscore the point that Genesis 19 or 18 and 19 is like a pantry full of cans of worms, one after another. Reading Genesis 19, we unlid one after another after another. One brutal and sensitive, frankly alarming story follows after the next and I find it's kind of a relief just to get to the end of it. Its gruesomeness makes it it very difficult to make sense of. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of being beaten around and I sort of survive to the end instead of being able to make sense of the whole. We struggle, I suspect, to grasp the core of its message. What is the passage even there for? Why on earth did this episode, or rather these episodes, make their way into God's Word and then preserved down the ages for the good of God's people? We might ask ourselves. But I've begun with Peter for a second reason, namely because I think Peter has seen through to the heart of what Genesis 18 and 19 is about. For Peter, Lot, or rather God's conduct in the example of Lot, well, without that, our hope would be undermined. Without that, our security would waver as Christians. It's that very last bit in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, the verse 9 bit, I think it is. In view of Lot's escape from Sodom, says Peter, in view of Lot's escape from Sodom, the Lord knows how to rescue godly men, godly people from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. Christian, we can take this much away from this swirling mess of people and pain and death. God knows how to rescue the godly. Doesn't the Lord know how to spare, how to save the ones that He loves, 
from the coming and certain judgment of God. If he did it with Lot, he will do it with us. And so if you've ever feared judgment day, ever wondered, perhaps with a certain weight of terror on your very soul, how it's going to go if God scrutinises your life with a fine-tooth comb, your, your, very, your every decision, your every action, your inner life, if God were to shine the spotlight on that, well, Christian, if the Lord saved Lot, rest assured, He knows how to rescue you from the judgment of hell. And yes, we'll have a bunch of other issues to address along the way, but I think that is where the compass of Genesis 18 and 19 resolutely points. The Lord knows how to save. So can we pray as we come now to, uh, back to Genesis 18? If you're following along, please have, um, have uh, Genesis open in front of you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust this morning that you have given your word to us for our good, for deepening and maturing our minds and hearts and lives, our sense of ourselves and our grasp of you. But we do find, Father, some of its stories grievous, burdensome, even baffling, certainly troubling and sad. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant to us to see our Saviour and ourselves more completely, more wholesomely, more holistically this morning. Show us how to bless this world, this broken world, and to believe in Jesus more deeply, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. You might be wondering why we've got this text in front of us this morning. It's because uh, most of the time here at Good News Church, we preach through big passages of the Bible, large sweeps. God's Word gets to set the agenda here. And so we rejoin the story, it just happens to be this week, with Abraham cresting the brow of this hill, looking down on the plain stretched out below him. And alongside him, do you remember from last week, are the Lord in human form and these two angels, these two companions who, it turns out, have been tasked with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that we know from earlier already in Genesis, are renowned for evil and wickedness. Uh, What's interesting though, what's interesting is not so much that God then decides to judge um, Sodom, that's actually not that remarkable in terms of the God that we already know from the chapters of Genesis so far. No, what's, what's because cast your mind back uh, to uh, the Lord's action, He judged Noah's generation in the flood, didn't He? We've already seen that. He judged the tower, the tower builders at Babel, Genesis chapter 11. But the thing is, since when does God play his cards face up on the table with a mere mortal, for that mortal to then scrutinise and poke at and prod at? Well, since he set his heart on doing life with real people, with Abraham. God wants his justice not just to be feared, he wants it to be understood, to be grasped, to be known, even to be followed and imitated in the life of Abraham. Take a look here as we crest this hill with Abraham in Genesis 18, when the men, that is uh, the Lord and his companions, got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Now, just have a look at the language here in verse 19, follow closely with me. For I have chosen him 
so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Just see how those words then follow through the rest of the passage. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So that Abraham's kids will do what is right and just. Therefore, I'm going to play this hand face up. I will show you, Abraham, my right and just for you to test, for you to weigh, for you to poke and prod and ultimately for you to imitate and for you to pass on. And Abraham, for once, he asks a perfect question, verse 23. We're not going to read the whole text of the passage again, don't, don't fear, it's a long one, isn't it? Thanks so much for reading it well to us, uh, Peter, before. But do uh, notice, Abraham asks the perfect question. If justice and rightness is to be what he's supposed to imitate, verse 23. Then Abraham um, approached him, that is the Lord, and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people? In the city, will he really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And here we go, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It would be easy to say that this prayer comes near to haggling. Uh, That's uh, Derek Kidner. But the right word is exploring. Abraham is feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith, of humility, in this whole mode of address and of love, demonstrated in his concern, did you spot this, for the whole city and not for his kingdom, uh, sorry, kinsmen alone. His concern for the whole city. I wonder if you noticed that on the way through. So, uh, you know, we go through this, well, you can call it what you like, haggling, exploring, feeling his way forward, whatever. But who would be spared? Just say the Lord found 10 righteous people. Who would be spared under those circumstances? Did you spot it there? Have a look down at, say, verse 32. Verse 32. Then he, that Abraham, said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He, the Lord, answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. It, not them, it. In other words, if I find 10 righteous people, so kind of like a house full of people, if I find one house full of people, I will, I will spare it, that is the city, the whole city. What about all the righteous ones? Well, Abraham, this is what about all the righteous ones. I will spare them along with the unrighteous. If crushing the wicked means crushing one innocent houseload of people, then I won't do it. I won't do it. Now, as a side note, brothers and sisters, this morning, I know that life doesn't always work this way. It doesn't always work quite so neatly. In fact, one of the things that I forgot to pray about just a few moments ago was the earthquakes in Japan. And it's just how it works out sometimes, isn't it, in this life. The suffering of innocence ties us in knots. It ties our hearts up in agony. But I think this is supposed to image for us the final judgment. And there, at least, we are supposed to be able to emerge from this and say, he will not crush the righteous there. He won't. You notice God is not angered here by Abraham. 
He doesn't grow impatient and cut him off after the whole, you know, 50, then 45, then 30, oh, come on. No, no, it's not as if you don't get at all the impression. There is not a whiff of the sense of resentment that Abraham is backing God into a corner or a plan that he hadn't already intended to do. No, no. Will not the judge of the earth do right? But now the real challenge begins because now we have to find those 10. Oh, God will spare the city. He'll spare the city if he can find just even the wicked. If only he could find just one houseload of people, just 10 people. Now, for the record, I think the reason Lot's house doesn't count, so to speak, you know, why isn't the city spared, given that, you know, Lot's house is there? Oh, I think, I mean, apart from the fact that actually you don't find 10 people in his house, how many did you find? Four. Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Um, You don't even make 10. Uh, But no, I think, uh, rather, I don't think it's the arithmetic so much, Um, I think it's rather that Lot and his wife and his two daughters... They are seen as outsiders, as unwelcome aliens. That comes out in the text, in the story that was read to us. You don't belong here anyway. Go back where you came from, seems to be the tenor of the Sodomites' relation um, to, or their posture toward Lot. Anyway, the angels, they enter the city. And uh, who should find them but Lot? Verse 2, chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19, verse 2. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet. And spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old. And I'm sure you remember the demand in verse 5, so I won't reread it. But please do notice, though, just a verse 5, the sin for which Sodom has become famous in our language, in our culture, in our heritage, if I can put it that way, it isn't quite the same, actually, as what verse 5 describes, is it? Because hasn't the term Sodom come to relate to homosexual acts rather generally, actually? But the historical reality here in Genesis 19, verse 5, is far more sinister. It is a demand. It is by force. We'll treat you worse than them, they say to Lot, having already threatened them. Get out of our way, we're going to beat the door down. And I raise that simply because at times, I think we as Christians, we have sadly made homosexual practice out to be the unforgivable sin. And it's just not. It's not. If we're going to talk about topics as heavy as the judgment of God and grievous sin and a great outcry that has reached the ears of the Lord, let's at least get the scale of the thing in Genesis 19 right. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old. Verse 10, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And you remember the angels, they blind the mob and then they come clean to Lot about why they're really there. The Lord, uh, verse 13, has sent us to destroy the city. But the search must go on. 
they're not satisfied yet. Perhaps there's a righteous someone, perhaps we've overlooked someone. What about your future sons-in-law, Lot? Don't you have anyone here? Which, by the way, I find a bit disturbing when we get to verse 14, because (laughs) verse 14, Lot finds those sons-in-law so effortlessly. It's as if all he had to do was open his door and they're still scratching around just outside, groping around his doorstep. What, what do you think? I mean, there's no searching, there's no journey, there's no finding, just verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But there were none. And as much as our modern sensibilities writhe and squirm at the thought, the text, it couldn't be clearer. God looked. He really looked. He he had the will to spare the city. He had the heart and there were none. Now, did he do it with an earthquake, unlocking sort of subterranean flammable gases that then shot flaming tar into the sky, which then fell down on the city? It's more plausible than you might think, actually, given the geology of the area, so I'm told. Was it a meteorite, which is, of course, extremely rare, but plausible in the hands of a sovereign God? Um, Archaeologists aren't really clear, actually, they're not quite sure. Um, There are a few candidates for which city is which, uh, destroyed about the right time, uninhabited for centuries afterwards. But however it happened, verse 24, then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Does not the Lord know how to rescue the righteous from judgment? He does, if only he could find them. Now, as we leave Genesis chapter 19 behind, at at least for now, and as we place it into the the rest of, of God's big picture, God's grand story told across the whole Bible, as we try to square this with God saving the righteous and that theme that stretches across the whole story, we have to concede that on one occasion, actually, as we try to piece this into the grander picture of the Bible, on one occasion, God did not rescue the righteous. On one occasion, God refused to spare the innocent. On one occasion, the city of evil was spared and the Lord placed a godly man under the hammer of his ferocious, unrelenting judgment on evil. Peter describes it like this, he says, for Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And Isaiah foretold it, didn't he, in these words? And I wonder if if Genesis 19 helps us to feel the horror of that exchange. Isaiah 53 verse 9, he, it's foretelling us of Jesus, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, 
He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Folks, as we edge towards a conclusion, you know, righteousness, um, judgment, uh, the wicked, sin, I think we need to hold three important truths together. Number one, we have to confront God's assessment of us which in Genesis 19 terms, it it says, you could search forever, forever, and still not find that righteous person whom God must save. I suspect, by the way, that is why we have that awful sting in the tail of Genesis chapter 19, that heart-rending, you know, ruin of Lot's family, you know, first his wife, um, but then his daughters... It's telling us that even the supposedly righteous tear apart at the seams, come apart at the seams and we are left, aren't we, mouths agape wondering why? Why would God spare them? Why on earth would God spare them from destruction if He's kind of in the mood for punishing wickedness, so to speak? Now, our trouble, I think, folks, is that I am so deeply reluctant to confront God's frank assessment of my life and my unrighteousness. You could search forever and still not find that righteous person whom God must save. That's the number one thing to hold in mind. Secondly, though, God does call sinners, like Lot, righteous, even though they're not. Why? Because for all of our flaws, for all of His flaws, they have faith. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, let me ask you, how bad does the sinner have to be before God says, no, I will never count you righteous? How bad does someone have to be before God says, no, Never, I will never bring you to me. Worse than Lot is the answer. You think of Lot and what he did. Worse than Lot, it seems. Offering his daughters. How did we describe it at the start? Sexist, selfish, weak, thoughtless Lot. But Peter can say three times, righteous, righteous, righteous. Now, I don't know what you've done. I know what I've done. But I know that in Christ, there is hope for you. You can be spared. He knows how to spare even Lot from judgment. He knows how to save. And thirdly, lastly, and I'll finish with this, would you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'd like us to finish here. Um, the church in Corinth. So we're in the New Testament now. Uh, so the time following the death and resurrection of Jesus and uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in Corinth. And I've got to say, like honestly, just the most messed up church in the New Testament that we meet. Um, all sorts of pretty ghastly stuff. You're going to have to read all that for another time. Uh, and it does seem that he, he, he begins here with a bit of a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of blast. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, oh, hang on, the list goes on, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that, says Paul to this motley bunch, is what some of you were, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified, that word means made righteous, you were made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Folks, don't be tempted to just look at the top half of that list and think it refers to someone else, the big bad ones, the ones that perhaps you've never been tempted in, perhaps you have, I don't know. No, look at the rest of that list as well. As God looks at our city As God looks at our church, as God looks at my heart and yours, will he find righteousness? Well, look at the conclusion, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Lord knows how to save God loves us, writes Mark McMinn. God loves us regardless of how we've failed. God loves us when others don't. God loves us when we despise ourselves. God loves us when we defiantly choose our own foolish path, when we squander our souls with terrible decisions and when we're lost and far away. God loves us in every season and every place. God loves us not because of what we are or are not, but because God is love. Can we pray together? Our Father God in heaven, we are confronted in this passage, indeed across your whole Bible, with um, sin and your ferocious judgment of it. We tend not to think it's so bad. We tend not to think it's such a big deal. What we do with our bodies or what we do with our tongues or what we do with our lives. But Father, you're watching and you care. You care very much. And we confess this morning that it is an affront to you the way that we've spent our time and energies and and lives in all sorts of ways. But God in heaven, this message, this passage your scriptures, your grand story isn't just about how dark sin is, it is about how bright and light and wonderful the gospel is. It is about your love for this broken world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Father, thank you that Christ came, the righteous for the unrighteous, and oh, that we would see ourselves in the first instance to be part of that latter category, And so confess our guilt and our shame and our sin freely before you. But Father, that we would see ourselves equally by your grace as part of that first category, righteous, thanks to the Lord Jesus. Washed and sanctified and justified, not because of what we've done, in fact, in spite of what we've done. Father, we pray, would you please teach us to hold out such a a wonderful message of of generosity, not of self-righteousness, but of righteousness in Christ. 
and the, and the guarantee of salvation from judgment. May we hold that out, Father, in such a way that we, we lift up Christ and that we're able to speak of his goodness to us and that he is good news for everyone. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.